Every summer at OAC, we turn to the Psalms and we spend the summer in the Psalms. And there's a lot of freedom and flexibility in that approach for us. And summer is a time that you need freedom and flexibility in Norway. <laughs> you don't never know who's going to be around or who you're going to be able to count on. Um, so it's nice. Um, we can, each person preaching can just choose which psalms seem relevant and what they have something to say about already. Um, and there are a whole lot of them. So if we feel like it, we can indulge in the luxury of reading the Bible the way most people do most of the time, doubling down on the parts we like and understand and ignoring the parts that we don't. But today is not one of those days. Today we're talking about Psalm 109. It's one of two Psalms which usually comes with a little warning label at the front. Open up a commentary on Psalm 88 or Psalm 109 and it will begin with something like, it's often unclear how to apply this psalm to the life of Jesus or the Christian life of faith. It's a very glossy academic way of saying, are you sure you really want to preach on this one? <laughs> a number of liturgical reading plans actually skip these two psalms because they're just too problematic to just pick up and use without some good explanation. You can't just read them to an audience and not say anything about it and expect it to fly. Uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, cunningly described them both as the Psalms of disorientation, mostly because of the way they make us feel after we read them. Um, the problem with Psalm 88 is that it's just too despairing. It focuses on the absence of God. And unlike a good Disney film, there is no happy ending in Psalm 88. At the end of the psalm, you're still at the bottom of the pit of despair, right where you started. Kind of a mood killer. The problem for Psalm 109, the one we're reading today, is that it is vengeful. It asks earnestly for God to destroy your enemies, and it never gets around to acknowledging your own potential fault um, or trying to forgive. It doesn't get you where you think you should be, by the end. What it does instead is invite you to bring your anger to God in faith. So let's read it together. Psalm 109. Do not be silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg seeking food, from the, food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, 
and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is the word of the Lord. That is some real anger. It is unrelenting. It's almost hard to read. It arises out of the anguish of someone who is facing false accusations, which they feel powerless to confront. Being attacked without cause, showing love and receiving wrath, doing the right thing, but ending up suffering for it. It's possible you have a hard time relating to just how dramatic the psalmist is being here. Who really has arch enemies like this, except maybe superheroes? How many of us have actually been brought to court and charged with a crime that we didn't commit? If this psalm could just turn down the heat a little bit, maybe it would be more relatable. Wishing someone's death, wishing their children to be beggars and their wives widows, that's next level stuff. But Maybe you have felt that way. Maybe you felt the pain of being falsely accused in another way. Felt this same anger from a different cause. It could have come from a very individual experience. Maybe someone close to you verbally unleashed their own demons on you, and you can't imagine what you did to deserve it. Maybe someone destroyed your reputation to save their own. This kind of anger can also come from communal experiences. Maybe people have said terrible things about you, proposed unspeakable ways of treating you because of your race or ethnicity. Maybe you've been dismissed or disregarded because of your gender or sexual orientation. Maybe you supported a political position or a cause and were alienated from your friends and family because of it. 
I hope that this kind of anger is not something that you feel all the time, but I would be shocked if you made it through life on this earth without wanting to scream into someone's face, what did I ever do to make you treat me this way? And when you feel that way, Psalm 109 invites you to bring your anger and entrust it to God in faith. You don't have to wait until you've started to sort things out to come honestly into the presence of God. The Psalms teach us to pray, and Psalm 109 teaches us to pray even our anger. Don't wait. Come. There are two things that the psalmist is sure of in Psalm 109. First, they have suffered unjustly, and second, God is the just judge of the world. You can break this psalm down in a number of ways, but the simplest is that the first half, verses 1 through 20, express the psalmist's anger at being falsely accused and assaulted. They argue for their own innocence, demand that their accuser face someone just as ruthless in their own trial, and push for them to receive the maximum sentence for their crime. Past the maximum sentence, actually. They ask for worse punishment than the Torah will actually allow. They're asking God to bend the rules to really make it hurt. Then in verse 21, they shift gears. The psalm turns away from focusing on the wrongdoer and turns towards the God they are calling on to be their judge. Through the rest of the psalm, they put their hope in three qualities of God that they know to be true. First, God is majestic and will work justice for his name's sake. Second, God is faithful, and his loving faithfulness means that he listens to those who pray to him and does not abandon them. And third, God is compassionate. He hears the prayer of the poor, the needy, the stricken, the afflicted, the injured, the oppressed. He takes up their case when they call. Because God is majestic, faithful, and compassionate, he can be trusted to judge this case. And because he can be trusted, the psalmist submits their case to his judgment. And this is the main thing. This is the turning point. This is what makes Psalm 109 more than just an angry tirade or a bad, bad Facebook post. When you submit your case to a judge that you trust, when you have enough faith in him to handle and control your case, you have to relinquish it for yourself. You cannot come into the courtroom of God and demand that the Most High take up your case and then start setting conditions about what you will do if you don't like his ruling. This is the God who says in Deuteronomy 35 and again in Romans 12, vengeance is mine. Bringing your anger to God in faith means handing over the case to his care. If you don't bring it to him, you'll probably do one of two things. 
One alternative would be to keep holding on to it yourself, suppressing that feeling of anger, denying its existence, but letting it eat away at you a bit each day. As the very often repeated quote goes, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Or maybe you'll decide to let your anger out, but not let it go, and you'll act on it instead. You'll carry out the sentence that you've decided on as best you can and ruin whatever high ground or innocence you once had. Then you'll be eaten alive both by your resentment and by your guilt. Psalm 109 invites you to bring your anger to God and entrust it to him by faith. It invites you to relinquish control of your case to someone who can be trusted with it. Most of all, it invites you to be free. As Christians, we look to Jesus as the prime example for how to live a life of faith. And when we read the Psalms, we do the same thing. We read them and we ask, okay, how does Jesus pray these? How does this work for him? Before we ask, how could it work for me? By his words and his actions, Jesus came to show us the way of life. He was a Jewish man, and the Psalms were a central part of his own devotion. He would have sung them, memorized them, prayed them. It's hard to imagine Jesus, the one whose central command is to love your enemy, the Lamb of God, praying Psalm 109 or applying it to his own life. It's just so much angrier than the Jesus that we're used to. But I think if we look again, we will see that Jesus applies this way of turning over our enemies to God's judgment in both his words and in his deeds. I'm just going to pick a couple of examples, but I think, I think there are a lot more um, that are worth looking at. But just to, just to focus on a couple, one is in Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where we find the Beatitudes. And in the last one, in verse 11, Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for though they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Psalm 109 teaches us to take our anger and hand it over to God, trusting that he will take up our case and work justice on our behalf and Jesus does the same thing in this last beatitude, but with some additions. First, Jesus makes sure you know that your blessing is coming when you have been falsely accused on his account. His words of assurance are for you when you have followed Christ as best you could and have received evil from it, for it uh, from others in return. Praying for God to take up your case Relinquishing it to his judgment also means making sure that you're on God's side and not blindly expecting God to be on your side. You have to take a minute before you pray to really take stock, to really make sure that you're being mistreated for doing what you ought 
and not being mistreated because you deserved it. There are other psalms for that. There's a step of caution in here that guards us from praying this with self-righteousness. Second, Jesus gives the prophets as his example for how God works out his justice. Most of the prophets died without being listened to, without being vindicated, without watching their enemies be punished. But by the time Jesus spoke about them, their faithfulness to preaching the very word of God was recognized. Their lives were exalted as examples of holy living. Their words preserved forever as holy scripture. Their enemies either forgotten or remembered only as examples of how not to live. God did work justice for the prophets, but it probably did not seem that way to them. For them, it was a matter of faith, and it very well might be for you too. Turning your case over to God's judgment sometimes means being okay with not knowing how or when he works it out. It is an act of faith. It was even an act of faith for Jesus and for his disciples. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, the 11 remaining apostles are trying to come to terms with how Judas, one of their own, betrayed Jesus. He betrayed all of them, really. And one of the psalms they used to try to deal with the situation is Psalm 109. They quote it particularly where it says, let another take his office. They probably had the whole psalm in mind when they were quoting this line. It's not as if they memorized the psalms one you know, just the single convenient lines. Um, but this is the, the psalm where you turn when you need God's help dealing with someone like Judas. So when Judas came to the Garden of, of Gethsemane in the night, followed by an armed mob, there to put Jesus through a botched midnight trial and pass a death sentence on him, I think it's fair to assume that Jesus was angry. In remembering that night, probably all of the disciples were angry with Judas for lighting the match that blew their hopes and dreams sky high. God had a perfect plan, and they knew that by now. They'd seen the resurrection, but that still didn't exonerate Judas or relieve their anger. He could do such a thing. How could he do such a thing when Jesus had only ever loved him and honored him? How could he do this to his friends, his brothers? So they turned to Psalm 109 and planted their anger in God. They let him judge both what should happen to Judas and how to move on. You can't know how God will decide to deal with the people who have mistreated you. It's very unlikely they'll end up like Judas did. In fact, it's very possible, even highly likely, that they will ask for mercy themselves and receive it. That's the risk you run when you have faith in God to be a good and just judge. You might not get the vengeance you ask for, but you will be heard and you will be free. So what are we supposed to do with Psalm 109? 
How do you actually use this poem of anger and vengeance, wrath and heartbreak that so surprisingly interrupts your otherwise peaceful Bible reading? (laughs) The first way to use it is to pray your own anger. When you are angry because you've been wronged and you need words to bring it to God, you can start here. Often what the Psalms do for us is give us the words that we can't find ourselves. Imagine the Psalms like a book of sonnets that a love-struck teenager uses to write to his sweetheart. He wants to share his feelings, but he knows that he's no poet. So instead he copies down a sonnet from Shakespeare into a letter. Or more likely, he puts a verse from some pop artist into a text message or a Snapchat or something that I don't really get. I don't know. But the Psalms are words given to us for when we don't have the right words ourselves. When you need words for how angry you are, try using these ones. But there's another way you can use it. When there is injustice in the world that isn't about you, when there are things worth being angry about that aren't about you, or when Psalm 109 comes up in your regular reading schedule and you just don't need it quite this way for yourself. You can use it to pray for others. You can intercede for others in their suffering with these words, bringing their mistreatment to the good and just judge as if it were your own. When there's a genocide, when people are exploited, when people's rights are taken away and their dignity robbed from them, when what other people are going through is unbearable to them and to the rest of us, you can bring it to God by faith in this way. I said at the beginning of this sermon that this psalm is problematic because it does not get you where you think you should be going you are not really ready to start loving or forgiving your enemy by the time you get to the last line. But every difficult and worthwhile thing has to be done in steps. Forgiveness is no exception, especially when it's forgiveness about something that really mattered. Of course, in the end, you want to forgive every person who has wronged you, everyone working unspeakable evil in the world. That's the end game. But when what they have done is really serious, chances are you won't get all the way there in a day. Psalm 109 offers the first step. Take every angry, hurt, vengeful feeling you have and bring it to God in faith because nothing is beyond his care. Please pray with me. Almighty God, good and perfect judge of all things, we come to you with our pain and our anger at injustices directed at us and at innocent people around the world. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Display your majesty, remember your faithfulness, work out your compassion. By your Holy Spirit, give us faith to come to you in every circumstance of life and every stance of the heart. 
trusting you with both our joys and our sorrows. Through Jesus Christ, who suffered as we suffered and yet was without sin, and reigns with you now and forever. Amen. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go in peace, to, in love, to serve the Lord.